Welcome to Labour Days, the first edition of a new podcast covering labour and trade union issues. My name's Ed, I'm a trade union member in the PCS union. I've previously been a branch officer in Unite and Unison in the higher education sector, and I've got an interest in labour history and trade union issues more generally, and I've gathered together a coterie of like-minded fellow travellers to talk about uh, today we're going to talk about the picture house cinema strike we're going to talk about the 1907 music hall strike and we're going to kick off with a bit of a discussion about why we've decided to do this podcast and what we think it would be useful for uh, the reasons behind it so we're just going to go around and introduce ourselves i've already done that so ellie do you want to introduce yourself so my name is ellie clark i am a socialist feminist i am heavily involved in the labor party also involved in momentum and and various other things so i think for me what's very important about podcasts like this is um a mixture of the fact that Without trying to romanticise the past too much, I think we've lost a culture in which uh, the labour movement is is part of our everyday lives and it's part of something we talk about and it's part of something we understand. And that even leaks through into um, our hobbies and maybe our social life a bit more. Um, and I think that that's something that we could get back and this could be part of that process and part of that discussion, hopefully. Um. Cool. Uh, I'm Daniel. Uh, I am a railway worker and um, a, a rep and activist in the RMT union. Um, I'm a revolutionary socialist and a member of Workers' Liberty. Um, I think that this podcast uh, kind of can be useful for, for a number of reasons. Um, I'm quite concerned, as I'm sure everybody in the room is, by the fact that, you know, despite unprecedented austerity and attacks on our class... Um, strikes are at their their lowest their lowest ever level. Um, the, the the tide of class struggle is at a very very low ebb, um, and I think it's important to to kind of talk about how we can turn that round, and what what I think something like this might be useful for is is looking at um, uh, hi historical disputes that we can learn from, but also trying to trying to use this space to amplify the uh, things in the contemporary labour movement that, that book that trend, so strikes that are going on, places where workers are organising, fighting back, having successes, trying to trying to generalise that, um, but, but also just being a space where um, labour movement activists can kind of, can sort of shoot the breeze a little bit because there is, there is, a, there is now a growing sort of radical, um, a kind of radical like media sphere, some podcasts, blogs, you know, sort of whole alternative media operations, but there's not very much of that which is um, uh, specifically focused on um, on the labour movement. Um, you you get a bit of that from a publication in the states like Jacobin, for example, but but there's but there's there's not really much certainly in this country that that acts as a as a forum for those sorts of discussions. So um, I think this podcast can be useful for that. We've also got our producer Liam. We've also <coughs> got a special guest Kelly Rogers, who is a Beck Two rep at the Pitch House Cinemas. Good yeah. evening, Kelly. <laughs> <laughs> Hi, yeah, my name's Kelly Rogers. I work 
at the Ritzy Cinema in Brixton, um, which has been on strike now for almost uh, six months. We've been having lots of strike days over the course of that time. Um, and I'm here to be talking about the Pitch House strike, which is no longer just the Ritzy, but a number of picture houses. Um, so yeah, we'll return to, we'll come back to Kelly later in, uh, later in the show. We're also joined by uh, our live studio audience, um, comprising, uh, we've got Ed, Ed2, uh, with us here. Evening, Ed. <laughs> and uh, we've got Augustina joining us as well. Uh, studio audience perhaps representing as much as 50% of the total listenership of the podcast. <laughs> I'm not really paying attention. Right? <laughs> 25% of the total listenership which, of the podcast. Um, which, which maybe just to round off the introduction, we can, we can say a couple of words about, you know, who who we think might listen to this because we're all we're people who are um you know have been active in either in left groups or in the wider labor movement for for some time um uh i, I mean i'm certainly hopeful that this uh this podcast will will have a uh reach beyond people like that or if it doesn't have a wider reach i'd like to narrow down the audience as much as possible <laughs> basically down to people who want to uh, do uh, LARPing of the 1934 Minneapolis teams to strike. So those are the, those are the, those are the two, those are my two aspirations. Either, either an audience beyond the, the ranks of the existing labor movement left or one so specific uh, as, to basic, as to basically be... So specific they would get that joke. Yeah, as to, as to be completely inaccessible and esoteric to anyone outside this room. Either millions or just you. <laughs> And, and nothing in between. <laughs> exactly. For me, it's um, it's the case. I think that there is a uh, existing layer of people who are active in the trade union movement on a day to day basis, but there isn't a culture in the movement at the moment of uh, talking about discussing uh, big strategic questions, even really bread and butter tactical questions, because you spend, and I'm sure anyone who's a trade union rep will probably agree with this you spend the vast majority of your time sort of running to stand still doing the basic sort of stuff that you have to do as a trade union rep you know you go to your meetings you do your disciplinary you do your grievances and if there's a dispute you organize your picket line but what you don't do is think more in more detail about the sort of uh big questions around the movement i mean there's there's a lot of ideas that we that we've had around um uh, uh themes that we could do episodes around um i think it's good that we're starting with a dispute which is quite a quite an unusual and quite an inspirational dispute and i think probably a dispute that actually a lot of people still haven't heard about and if they have heard about it probably haven't heard about it directly probably haven't heard a lot of detail um and I think, yeah, like Dan said, it's it's trying to amplify the sort of good news because we're very bad at doing that, I think. You know, the trade union movement, for all that we will pick up on its faults, and I know that we will, <laughs> we, we certainly will do that, but we still do a lot of good, you know. We still do a lot of good day in, day out, and we're very, very bad at communicating that even to the rest of the movement to say... Yo, you know, maybe you guys can try some of this as well. Maybe you can do it in your workplace. 
and if we got even a, a, a small audience of people that were interested in learning from other people's experiences and, and struggles that I think that would be a worthwhile thing for us to do um I mean, I think for me, the sky's the limit, to be honest. If these guys are, <laughs> if these guys are the kind of hardened realists of the gang, I'm the, the, I'm the eternal optimist. <laughs> <laughs> and to be perfectly honest, if I'm not getting fan mail from sort of randoms <laughs> in Canada in the next two weeks, I'm you're out, you're out. Yeah. Yeah. I'm out. Um, I, I mean, I think, I think this, this is, this is a, a kind of very broad topic, which I'm sure we'll return to if if this project goes on. So I only want to say you mean when this project when goes when on. when this project goes on. So um, I only want to say a sentence or two about it here. But I think um, I think I think we all we all share a desire to see um, to see a kind of resurgence in 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 class politics, um, and particularly against the backdrop of. Uh, the kind of global populist moment on both the right and the left. I think, I think, I think it's fair to say that we we we're all coming from a place where we think class is still kind of central and is still the kind of key act, the key t t terrain of for organising and struggle. And and I hope that the discussions we have here can maybe reach out to people who are interested in or involved in kind of radical politics in a general sense, but maybe not not yet convinced about that idea about the centrality of class and maybe start maybe start to persuade them on that. This is labor, 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 labor. Well, this is the special guest segment of uh, Labor Days and we're very lucky to be joined by uh, Kelly Rogers, who is a worker at the Ritzy Cinema in Brixton and a, and a rep in the Bechtel Union who's who's been involved in the strikes at the Ritzy and, and now several other Picturehouse cinema workplaces. So. Um, we're going to chat about about that dispute and and why it's good. If that's all right. That's yeah, that's, yeah. That's why I'm here. Great. Uh, th well, thanks for coming. So maybe just to start off for people who might not be aware that the strikes are taking place or what they're about, do you want to just give us a, some kind of general background? Yeah. So. Um, I guess the strike started. If you want to sort of go right back to. The strike started um, really three years ago now, in 2014. Um, that was when sort of like the, the living wage banner was first like properly raised. Uh, the, it was just the Ritzy workers on their own. I wasn't working there at the time. Um, there was 13 strikes over the course of four months over the summer of 2014. Um, they got a lot of support, a lot of uh, high profile press coverage. Eric Cantona came to a picket line, it's very exciting. Brilliant. Brilliant. <laughs> um, and at the end of that, there was a deal sort of struck between Picturehouse and the workers, which was, which basically um, set out a 26% pay rise, um, staggered over the subsequent two years, um, which brought us up to what we're on now, which is £9.10 per hour. Um, but all the key part of that deal was that over the following two years, um, Picturehouse would go away, look, uh, its business model and work towards implementing the living wage and we go back into negotiations in June last year. We did that, um, we went, we turned up, we said, okay, this is our pay claim this time round, we still want the living wage and this is what you said you would you would give us, but we also want sick pay, we want maternity and paternity pay, we want um, fair pay for our projectionists and our chefs and our managers. Um, what do you have to say to us? And they said, um, well, we don't even want to talk about any of those things and when it comes to living wage 
we haven't looked at our business, business model, we haven't done anything, so we have no intention of paying you a living wage, we never did, we think you pay you fairly. Um, so we came out of that meeting and a few months later we were out on strike. Um, we struck for the first time in September 2016 um, and since then there's been, over the last what, five or six months, five months, um, we've gone from one site on strike to five with a sixth balloting we've now got. Um, I mean, only a couple of weeks after the Ritzy started striking, Hackney Picture House joined us, then it was Picture House, then it was Crouch End, then Picture House Central, um, now Brighton, um, Duke of York's, and East Dulwich's Picture, uh, Picture House is balloting um, currently. So it's quite exciting, and um, that's sort of the general background. So one, one of the uh, like features of your dispute, which seems to be most exciting is well you just described how in a very short space of time it's gone from a dispute at one workplace to a dispute at several um which very much books well i mean it books it books the trend by kind of existing at all um <laughs> and and in you know in a period of very very low strike levels but definitely books the trend in, in terms of being a strike that that spreads and spreads quite rapidly and that spreads in workplaces where a lot of existing orthodoxy says you know, it's really difficult to organise, zero hour mm. contracts, precarity, etc, etc. So it's a it's a spreading strike in in kind of quote tough to organise unquote workplaces. Like how 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 have you done it? Um so I guess there's there's a there's a few there's a few parts of it. One is um I mean the groundwork for for some of these sites that have joined us, the groundwork's been laid sort of three years ago, you mm -hmm. know. Things like Bright Brighton and I mean, mostly really, really Brighton. You know, they there was talk about doing it three years ago. It just never really happened um, for whatever reason. So there's been people that have stayed at the site and who are still interested and who've been in touch with uh, the Ritzy and with Bektu, um over the last three years. And so that was sort of quite easy to at least start those conversations. I think the main thing is, though, is that we've just spent a lot of time talking to people. You know, I've personally, with a couple of other people at the Ritzy, spent the last year, like long before we were actually striking, going around to... Um, the other picture house sites in London. You know, we've we've been to all of them a number of times. Been kicked out by managers. Been, uh, um, you know, told off for even being there. Uh, and and actually beyond London as well. We've been to Liverpool. We've been to um, Durham. We've been to a bunch of places. But um, and I think, it, you know, so people sort of say, like like you said, people say that oh, young people aren't really interested in trade unions or young people aren't interested in going on strike. You know, it's impossible to organise precarious workplaces. You know, sort of my experience um, contradicts that quite sort of like... Starkly. Yeah, yeah exactly. Um, because, I mean, yeah, it's, it's true. I go, to, I go talk to someone across the bar, I get my cup of tea so that I can have a conversation with them and I talk to them about it. And uh, I say, I'm from the union back to this is what we're doing. Would you like to get involved? And they're like, I've got I've never heard of a trade union before. But actually they, they do know that they are exploited, they mm. do know that they're low they're they're poorly paid. They and you know, they also probably most of them know what the living wage is now. Most of them know that and you know, it's quite easy to persuade <coughs> them that actually something they should get involved with. Some of the sites though, it's literally just been and it's not even about sort of going to another site actively and sort of like turning up and being that person with leaflets and although that's a very good thing to do, you know, Crouch End, uh, it just just so happened that one of them came into my cinema while I was working and I've just got into the habit of if someone comes with a staff card to the bar, 
then I'll be like, oh, where do you work? Do you want to talk about this thing that's happening? And I just so, and I had a really good conversation with Marianne from Crouch End. We exchanged emails and a couple of weeks later we we're having a meeting with workers in Crouch End and literally a few weeks later after that they were balloting. Um, that's, I mean, that's, it, was a, it, was a mass, it was a quick turnaround and it's, I think that's the thing, it's incredibly easy. I mean, not that easy, but it's, you know, straight, much, much, much easier than people will make you think it is. Mm. People make you think that going to talking to people about going on strike is like the hardest thing in the world. It's not. People are desperate to sort of like uh, take control of their, of their working lives and make their lives better. And actually, it's quite easy. So specifically in Brixton, because you guys were out previously and then obviously um, you, you had this, this period of negotiation in which it became blatantly obvious that uh, the, the bosses don't care. They don't mm. care and they're not going to do anything to, to facilitate you having a better working life. Um, did you feel amongst the workers that there was a level of kind of demoralisation or was everybody like actually just raging to get back out on the picket lines again? Or was there a level of okay, although the, the groundwork has been laid, pop, we need to reconvince most of the staff that actually they do want to go back on strike and that it's not pointless. I think, so I think the Ritzy, the Ritzy sort of um, is actually quite, a spe you know, has its own sort of specific sort of thing going on at the moment compared to the other sites, because the other sites, it's very new to them, it's very exciting, none of them have ever done this before, and so they're just like riding the wave of sort of like doing something exciting and which they care about and which is important to them. But you know, this is the first time they've ever been in the press, this is the first time they've ever been called up by a journalist to give an interview. That's that's exciting for them. For the Ritzy, there's a but like you know, there's obviously over half of this probably new, but since you know, have joined since the last strike, but. Um, a lot of people are left over from the last one. I think they feel ex they they feel like they they haven't really had a two year break. They feel like it's been ongoing, and they I think they feel very some you know that they care about it all the more because it's been going on for so long. But I think people are people are it's not demoralisation, but people are frustrated that we're asking for something so little. Like we're not we're not asking for the world. We're not asking you know we we it's within our rights to ask for much more than we're asking for. We're asking just enough to live on and sick pay and whatever. You know, that's, and yet it's taken years. Like, I mean, the first, really the first time we asked for a living wage was 10 years ago in 2007. You know, people, and some people are still here from that strike back in 2007. People have been literally fighting for living wage for 10 years. And yet, so like there's frustration there. Um, and so I think we've experienced, I wouldn't call it demoralization, but people, but doubts um, have definitely been there more at the Ritzy than the other places. And we sort of, and I think that's why the fact that it's spread um, has been not only our greatest strength in the sense that it's how we're going to win, but it's also been our greatest strength in the fact that, you know, who knows? We could have still been striking six months into a camp, into the dispute mm. just on our own, but probably not. Like, and I think the fact that Hackney joined two weeks, two weeks after we did and we, and they have just been so enthusiastic, you know, they've been, having a go at us for not going on strike as much as they are. They go on strike and they pick it for nine hours and then they go clubbing until 10 o'clock the next morning. And they like, uh, <laughs> Just like the old dockers. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean, you laugh, but a docker would drink you on the Oh, absolutely. <laughs> so one of the aspects of the pitch house strike is that you've picketed 
in a way which is perhaps more effective than most people are used to picketing over the last few years. Can you mm. talk about the way that you've organised picket lines? So, how do we picket? I mean, we, we want to have very lively pickets, we want to have very active pickets, and we want to make sure that, and you know, we try and make sure that everyone who's picketing um, knows how to argue with someone about crossing the picket line and, you know, have the basic spiel there ready so that they can deal with because we're not um it's not just we're not just coming into contact with other workers we're not just you know we're not just at factory gates we are um we're also coming into contact with customers members of the public and um and that's probably the main thing we actually do is talk to customers and try and persuade them don't cross the picket line um if the cinema's open please come back another day or never (laughs) um but until you've won until we've won Mm. but um uh, and I, you know, and you can see sort of like where that's been successful. The most recent one being uh, the last strike we went on, where it was the first time we had a regional site out. It was Brighton. Um, we it was, again, it was really, it was a really great day. We we brought a bus full of fifty workers to Brighton from London. We had Labour Party people, local campaigners. Everyone was there, and I think sort of around over half of the workers were striking, and you know, part of the union, and you know. But there was a number of staff that were planning on going in that evening. And because the day was so good and because we were so attractive, I suppose, we, they, we convinced them over the course of the day and they, they joined the union that day. They signed up and they didn't go into their evening shift. And so I think that sort of shows that picketing is still relevant and, it's just, and just, it's still very important. The, why, the reason why picketing has changed um, from the beginning of the strike to now is because, from what I was talking about earlier, the sort of like letters we've been getting from um, Cineworld lawyers sort of threatening us and back to getting twitchy, but also sort of like the, the new Trade Union Act and mm. sort of like the that being implemented, it means that there's, there's a lot more restrictions than what we can do on our picket line. We have to be we have to be supervised by by a particular person. The we've we've been told that we're only allowed to have six people on our picket lines now. Whereas you know earlier strikes earlier in the dispute we had picket lines of fifty people, um, and still customers were managed to get through get through the get through get through without talking to us. I mean some customers would literally take the picket line at a run so that they could <laughs> so that they weren't being stopped by workers. But it's not it's not true legally even now that you can only have six people on the picket. That's true and that's what we um are saying to our officials and you know even you know and if pressed that they'll they'll admit that I think they're trying to contain a situation because they because a forty line picket is much more difficult for them to control than a six man picket. Um that's something we we're continuing to contest um, because it's important for us that we are able to have strong picket lines and because they've worked, you know, we I don't think we'd have the momentum that we do do now if it wasn't for the sort of strength of our strikes um, six months ago. I th- I mean I think that that's that's something which has definitely been very um, v- visible and important. Uh, I I think about about your disputes because there is a culture in the contemporary labor movement that sees pickets as a sort of token as a kind of token protest whereas historically pickets have been uh you know something that's very directly strategic it's about it's about you know physic being a, a physical bl- block on the workplace and stopping people from scabbing um and your your dispute has kind of used picketing in in that way in a way that in, in a lot of other and even much much bigger strikes more recently ha- hasn't necessarily and I think that this is one of the areas where um, 
the trade union act should be basically is one of the areas where we're best able to organize defiance of it um because although the law has tightened up um on on what you're allowed to do on a picket line i mean i, I think that should be tested you know like mm. what what are they like what are they going to do if there's mm. if, if if we put if we put 50 100 people on a on a picket line are they going to arrest they're going to come and arrest everybody mm. um i mean you know Ha, ha, having strikes where we mobilise fifty to hundred people to, to to be on a picket line would be a, would be, a, would be a great would be a great thing. You say that, but we did do it. Like yeah, you know, and, exactly. And I, and, I think, yeah. and I think that's. I mean, yeah. you know, obviously it's mostly comprised. I mean, so you know, we had we had some well, the first time that the Ritzy was open um, on a strike day. They got, I think they got a bit cocky because it was a short strike. We're basically going to be striking for a couple of hours, like walking out and walking back in. So they just thought they'd keep it open. So we made sure that every member, you know, pretty much every member was on that picket line. But also, you know, put a call out on social media saying like, if, if you're going to come to a strike, come to this one. People did. People came from all over Brixton. And so we, we did have incredibly strong pickets. And I think... They are getting nervous, and of course they are, because, yeah, we've gone from one site to six. There's 21 picture houses, um, so we've got over a quarter of the sites, and we've got the biggest sites. So all of the flagships, all of the, the money makers are now unionised, they're now out on strike. Um, they're in a very sick situation, and I think, I'm hoping, I'm quite confident that we're sort of entering sort of a new stage of the dispute, where you know, the momentum is still there. You know, we've got, like I said, East Dulwich sort of hopefully coming out soon, um, we've got ideas about what the next sites are going to be to line up after them. Um, we we know where it's going to grow. You know, I think they're going to have to start negotiating soon. So we'll see. This is labor, 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 labor. Okay, so um, segueing seamlessly into the uh, history hour with Professor Edmund Mustell. <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, <coughs> kind of idea a sort of rough idea we had for the format of the podcast which we won't necessarily stick to each time but we're going to go with for the, for the first one was that we would talk about a um a contemporary dispute and a historical dispute that that the themes of which kind of echo each other in some way um and and maybe draw out some parallels and 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 discuss some contemporary sort of resonances so uh the, the good professor here is going to be giving a little presentation on uh, the 1907 music hall strike, which is not a strike I was at all aware of until um, Ed told me about it. Yeah. Ellie? I had no idea it existed. Kelly? Until I, until I read that. No. no. It's, a, it's a slightly obscure strike, and maybe you might say, Ed, just in introducing it, why, um, why you decided to pick this one um, rather than... You know, this is it's our it's our first episode, and we could have looked at a uh, you know a, a, a famous strike or one of the strikes that's kind of venerated in the like pantheon of of labour history in this country. So so why why have you gone for a, a kind of relatively um, obscure dispute, or or it is the fact of its obscurity precisely why you've gone for it? I think because you're a massive you are a massive fan of obscurity. I'm a massive nerd. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Um, that's a big reason. Well, um, I think. Um, a lot has been written and talked about, you know, the dock strike, the March <coughs> women's strike, the, the the things that if you know if you're have if you have some familiar familiarity with uh, labour history, you you will have heard of on some level, 
Um, the, I mean, I I barely knew that this this strike existed until a couple of years ago when I was researching the the period more generally. Um, I think one of the interesting things about it is that you know we're talking so we're talking about the pitch house strike and we'll talk about this afterwards. You know, we're talking about the pitch house strike. It's it's in the entertainment industry. You know, it's it's uh, the the unions that are involved in this were the direct ancestors sort of industrially of of the unions that are involved in in pitch house um but more broadly i think there's an idea i suppose that um trade unions have only ever been relevant to people that work in a mine or a factory or on the docks or whatever and certainly in this period when trade unions were suffering uh, big defeats and then winning big victories in a in a sort of uh, a sort of cyclical sort of uh, uh, process and were growing very very rapidly but also then shrinking very very rapidly and growing again that it wasn't just the dockers union it wasn't just the miners federation there was also all sorts of stuff happening this this was also the period when a lot of white collar unions like the teachers and the you know and and the ancestor of like usdor the shop workers union all of these unions can sort of trace their lineage back to to this period at the turn of the 20th century and this myth has really taken hold that it was only ever sort of industrial manual workers who were in trade unions and the, the so therefore the decline of that sort of work means inevitably the decline of the trade union movement but this is an example of a successful dispute undertaken by people that weren't working in a factory or or a dockyard or, or whatever so it was and the fact that it, it it was successful as well which i'll talk about in a minute so yeah, that's those are the reasons. Are they are they good enough reasons? To, um, are you going to listen to this uh, <laughs> to the uh, story of this strike? <laughs> uh, yes, they, they are. They they all absolutely admissible. Daniel is satisfied. Ellie, are you satisfied? <laughs> I am satisfied. I'm happy. Kelly, are you satisfied? Definitely, I'm on the edge of my seat. Producer Liam, are you satisfied? <laughs> he's, he's given the thumbs up. All right, uh, all right. Scoreless. Okay. The nineteen oh seven musical strike. The Night House and Musical Strike, or as it was known in the papers at the time, the Music Hall War. <laughs> I'm not, not even, not even kidding. Well, there we go. That's the that's yeah. surely that's the first contempt we've got to start referring to Kelly's debut as the Picture House War, <laughs> or the War of the Cine Worlds. <laughs> Little did we know. <laughs> So, in 1907, the rather raucous world of London's music halls was hit by a two-week-long strike by three trade unions. Pickets were dispatched across theatre land. Among them, some of the biggest stars in the business, including Mary Lloyd, who was perhaps the most famous music hall star, and Gus Ellen, and Harry Lauder, who at the yeah. time was performing in Newcastle, sent a message of support. So, music hall was an incredibly popular form of working-class entertainment where... Um, you would go to a theatre for an evening and listen to a, a, essentially a sort of variety, like a variety performance, performance yeah. of music, comedy, you know, and it was quite sort of uh, ribald and sort of, uh, I suppose the humour kind of came close to breaking a lot of taboos. There was a lot of innuendo, you know, sort of, I suppose if, if you look back at it from a hundred years, it kind of seems a bit quaint and a bit daft, but at the time, was incredibly popular. 
Um, so the, the the origins of this dispute, and this is a the first parallel, I suppose, is that it actually started in Brixton at the end of 1906. It started at a You stand theater. on the shoulders of giants. <laughs> it started at a theatre called the Brixton Empress, which was literally, it doesn't exist anymore, it was literally more or less just over the road from where the Ritz is. In which, in which direction? Um, is it where McDonald's is now? Uh, it's near, yeah, it is, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it is in that direction, yeah. Um, and towards the end of 1906, the Variety Artists Federation, which was the union for the actual performers in the music hall, um, they took on uh, musical boss Walter Gibbons, who was trying to get around... There was a licensing system if you wanted your performers to work twice in one night. Uh, you had to get a licence from the London County Council. And what Walter Gibbons was doing is he owned two theatres and he would send them up the road to do one performance <laughs> in one theatre and then tell them to do the second performance in another theatre and he got around the, the licensing law. Quite, because, quite literally, the gig economy. Yes. Well. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> no, no, there's nothing new under heaven. Um, and taking him on on that issue gave them the confidence to try and extend the dispute. So again, we've got a dispute that starts on one single site in Brixton and extends across London. There were three unions in the industry. There was the Variety Artists Federation. There was the Amalgamated Musicians Union, which was the union for um, the people that played in the orchestras. And there was the National Association of Theatrical Employees, which is an ancestor of Kelly's Union Betsy. Um, and they each represented different groups of workers in the industry who had specific demands. So for the musicians, the big demand was they wanted a closed shop, which means that if you work in that industry, you have to be a member of the, of the trade union. And you get a guarantee from the managers that they won't hire non-union workers. Uh, the big thing for the variety artists was what they wanted an end to was something called barring orders, where if you signed on to perform at a particular chain of music halls, you were barred from working for any other halls. They wanted the freedom to take work whenever they, whenever they wanted it. And the backstage and front of house staff who were in the National Association of uh, Theatre Employees, their big demand was pay, basically. So some of those uh, workers were only getting two shillings and eight pence a week at a time when a railway worker like Daniel would probably be earning about 30 shillings a week. So you're talking about 10% of a railway worker's wage. Um, and the big thing that united everyone was that they'd started doing matinee performances on, on the weekend and they weren't paying anyone for it. So you'd go from doing six days uh, or five days of performance a week to doing six for, for no extra money. And what the unions did, the three unions, they incorporated all these demands into a charter of nine demands and then they went to the employers and said, we want you to sign up to this charter and then we know who's a union-friendly em employer and who isn't. Um, the first theatre to be hit by the strike was the Holborn Empire on the 22nd of January and the next day there were 500 pickets picking 14 music halls across London oh. catch so, up yeah. <laughs> yeah get your skates on yeah. the Labour Party was having its congress at the time in Belfast put out a statement wishing victory for the strikers and asking for public support 
So Ben Tillett, the uh, <laughs> Ben Tillett, the Edwardian the John McDonnell. Yeah. Ben Tillett, leader of the, the, the John McDonnell of his day. <laughs> he spoke to a, a, a big union fundraising gig at the Scala, which was a sympathetic venue, and he urged trade unions to boycott the halls that were being targeted. And throughout the strike, an idea developed that they would put on um, cooperative entertainments in sympathetic venues while the while the targeted halls were, were shut by the strike. Um, Harry Mountford was the secretary of the alliance of the three unions, and he was convinced that the unions could hold out indefinitely. He said, we can carry on this fight indefinitely. We have already received numerous contributions for the strike funds from working men who write to send us the sums they are saving by not attending the bar <laughs> So a fundraising idea for Beck 2 would be to say, give the cost of a cinema ticket to the to the strike fund. And because it now costs about a million pounds to go to the cinema. So some of the more sympathetic managers adopted the union's charter very quickly. And although the employers association came out with very tough, very uncompromising uh, statements, it was clear that there was big division among the employers. Um, some of the biggest stars, instead of going onto the stage every night, were actually performing on the picket lines. And this obviously created a huge media sensation. It was covered in all the newspapers. It was much more interesting and fun than, oh, the dockers are going on strike again, you know. Um, but really, those boring, boring donors. Yeah, yeah, yeah. When are they going to get some celebrities? To... <laughs> yeah. But really, for all the sort of glamour of that, it was the unity of the three unions in, in the industry that actually won, mm. industrially won the dispute. Uh, news of the strike reached as far afield as the Los Angeles Herald. Los Angeles Herald said, the Gibbons offices are crowded daily with applicants for engagements. They are mainly needy performers, amateurs, and stage-struck boys and girls anxious to get on the boards. These are the people who are mainly used by the halls affected by the strike to fill up their programmes. I asked Mr Mountford, Secretary of the National Alliance, why the pickets did not try to win over the amateurs. There's no need, said Mr Mountford, laughing. The spectators will soon make them get out as soon as they get in. <laughs> and Mary Lloyd is reputed to have said something similar when she saw a, a fellow performer who she particularly disliked cross a picket line. Mm. Uh, she said, don't try and stop her. She'll, em she'll empty the hall quicker than we have. About a week into the strike, there was a, t a period of a couple of days where it looked like it might spread outside of London. Harry Mountford went up to Manchester to address a meeting. It looked like they might walk out in Manchester. The Variety Artists Federation sent copies of the charter to all of their members all around the country, and there were about 150 meetings up and down the country. Um, they didn't extend the strike outside of London for reasons that I can't quite uh, uh, fathom from, from, the, from the research, but I think there was some disagreement, particularly in the, munici uh, in the uh, musicians' union. <laughs> the munitions union. <laughs> in the musicians' union, there was some disagreement... Uh, some of them didn't like the general secretary. They had a sort of like personal uh, personal gripe um, against him. And they decided against, perhaps against extending it because the unions weren't strong enough to conduct a national dispute 
and doing a London-wide dispute was perhaps uh, enough work for them. Um, the employers had resisted arbitration, had resisted negotiation from the outset, but they were forced to the table, basically, from the industrial strength of the dispute. Uh, a government arbitrator drew up an agreement which awarded a 30 shilling a week minimum wage for all the musicians, <laughs> except drummers who got 28 shillings. <laughs> <laughs> so... <laughs> You can, you can insert your own joke about the value of drummers at this point. Uh, they agreed to pay for the matinee performances. The membership of the Musicians' Union increased 100% in the next five years. They took on massive disputes, including a 23-week strike, Daniel, at the Nottingham Opera House hey. in 1908. <laughs> 23 weeks of not being able to go to the opera in Nottingham. <laughs> one, one wonders what people did. <laughs> and in the following years, the unions were finally strong enough to take on Oswald Stoll, who was the biggest and most intransigent of the music hall owners and a notoriously bad employer who they'd actually left out of targeting at the, in the 1907 strike because they didn't feel strong enough. Um, Oswald Stoll founded the Royal Variety performance in 1912, and he never invited Mary Lloyd to perform at the Royal Variety show. And I like to think that's because that she was a trade union militant and he was a... Uh, the Royal Variety show that, union that, that still exists. <laughs> yes, that, the very you know, same. Jimmy Carr goes on and the all that. The very yeah. same, yeah, yeah. Um, so the Music Hall War Jimmy. is an interesting dispute. <laughs> As I say, it sort of busts the myth that uh, trade unions were only ever relevant to factory workers and dockers. Um, it's a very, very solid example of different unions in the same industry coming together, striking together, mm. issuing a set of common demands. A and, offensive demands as well. Yeah, yeah, offensive demands. And winning, after two weeks, they, they won the bulk of, their, of, of the charter. Um, and you had a set of relatively highly paid workers, you know, the music hall stars, the celebrities, standing alongside people who were earning literally a, a pittance, you know. And it was probably one of the first strikes that I can think of that benefited from celebrity endorsements and kind of sympathetic press coverage because of that. Um, and, yeah, the most important thing is they won, and they won by taking indefinite action and sticking with it and maintaining sort of industrial unity and after a fortnight, the bosses caved in. And Amazing. the end, that was that. <laughs> and after that, everything was fine. It's been plain sailing ever yes. since. <laughs> the last hundred years have been absolutely brilliant. Um, all right, well, thanks very much for that, Ed. And we should, at this point, thank um, the uh, absent member of the Labour Day's uh, team, uh, Holly Smith, who... Uh, is based up in Newcastle and did a lot of the research for that presentation. So thanks, Holly, for that. So cool. I mean, there's a lot. There's a lot to kind of pick pick apart there. Um, Ellie, I know you had some thoughts in response. Yeah. So I mean, um, you've already mentioned Ed that that you wanted to kind of boss the idea that trade unions are only relevant to to dockers and mine workers. But I think there's something else that strikes me. 
especially in the modern age and I think kind of I, I can't help but look upon that strike with my eyes today but um, there's there's also something deeper it's not just that unions are only relevant to certain types of workers but actually certain types of people are not workers mm. and I think that that's something that can be picked apart a little bit more so I know for instance uh, where I work there's a there's like a graphic design firm upstairs from me and those guys are they are factory workers in the modern sense you know they're they're designing things by like hourly salaries and um i would hazard a guess that if you spoke to any of them about being working class or workers that would just be completely absent from their understanding of themselves and this is kind of a myth we've been fed so i'm not really sure if that's a question so much as just a statement of my mm. thought but i think that's something worth unpicking a little bit uh th this idea that musicians are workers especially like session musicians or musicians in the pit mm. yeah definitely i mean the, the thing that the thing which i thought was um it's just kind of important about it and and which is something that's like almost entirely absent from contemporary labor movement strategy although not not from the strategy of the picture house dispute which is one of the things which is great about it which is that this was an it was an offensive strike. Mm. It was a it was workers getting together and saying, okay, what what other kind of issues that we feel m most keenly and most immediately? How do we want them fixed? Okay, this is our charter. This is our demands. We're going to present it to the employer, and if they don't accede to these demands, we're going to withdraw our labour. You know, the the vast majority of strikes that take place today are reactive, defensive. You know, the employer announces that it's going to make some cut. Or, or even you know the employer makes some cut, and after it's happened, that that you know a union will will undertake a kind of tokenistic, a, a strike as a sort of a tokenistic gesture of of, uh, of of opposition, rather than um, you know using the strike as a weapon to advance workers' interests. So that's that's a really important feature. But but as I say, that's kind of, as I say, that's kind of a kind of a parallel with the pitch house dispute, which is which, which is has an offensive aspect, has an offensive aspect to it as well. I think it's interesting what you were saying, Ellie, about sort of the way that people conceive themselves as workers or not workers, or what, what kind of workers. And I think, I mean, obviously I don't know what they were thinking in 1907, but from my experience, people, the the act of unionising and the sort of the process of unionising and, and convincing, being convinced, but also convincing people around you that it's something, to that it's something worthwhile participating in, and that you deserve more, um, that you've, that, and I think, you know, that you deserve more, I think something that's quite interesting about sort of like the living wage demand, mm. even though in some ways it's not that radical, in other ways it is, and one of the ways that it is is that it's sort of ask it's asking for something. It's basically it basically says people deserve this amount regardless of what they do, or it's about it's about like what people need to survive, it's about what people need to live a good life, and it's about and that's quite radical compared to sort of like what other you know compared to other demands are being put forward at the game these days. But I think. For a lot of people at Picture House, you know, like we're bartenders, we're front of house staff, we pop, you know, we shovel popcorn and, cl and clean screens, and you know, like you're you're constantly. I think there's people sort of the the process of joining a union and asking for more and demanding more has empowered people and made them feel more proud of actually of what the work that we do, the work that we do, and and we we see ourselves in a different way as a result of that. Whereas you know, when you're not clubbing together when you're when you're CSL when you when you're when you're weak and when you're isolated that's when you start to, you feel ashamed of the fact that oh why, why aren't I sort of doing this out or the other 
why am I just a bartender? But actually, no, we, we enjoy bartending. You know, this, we, we want to work in a cinema. We enjoy we enjoy what we do, some of us, and some of us do it because we need to. But the point is, like, irrespective of that, we all feel better and we all, we all, we've all conceived of ourselves differently as a, as a result of sort of like mm. taking action as mm. a result of going on strike and as a result of convincing people around us that they should too and they also deserve more just like we do. I think there's uh, like a time that we should maybe clear up here at this point. Um, so the, the, the phrase living wage gets uh, sort of banded around a lot. You will see it in press, you'll hear it all the time. But what does living wage actually mean in monetary terms? Okay, yeah, so the living wage is... I mean, so the living wage figure that we've opted for is uh, £9.75 in London. It's, I think it's £8.45 outside of London. Um, and it's been set by the Living Wage Foundation. Um, it's, but the, the term basically refers to what you need in order to be able to pay your rent, pay your bills, and have a little bit left over to sort of live a fairly decent life, you know. Um, and it's been calculated by the Living Wage Foundation. Actually, the TUC has a, has, also has a living wage rate, which is higher. Mm. Um, and, you know... I think the living wage is something, as it becomes more and more sort of like household, um, something that people understand more and is sort of rolled out a bit more, I think it's actually probably we're going to see a process where, whereby the living wage is actually pushed down and we're going to have to start contesting who's living wage and who sets that and who decides that. But at the moment, I guess we're, we're, we're at the beginning of that process. and But the idea behind it is what do people need to live? Well, they've already, they've already called... Um the minimum wage rebranded it as the living wage mm. haven't they in order to kind of conflate those you know the idea that a living wage is uh, something that you need to have a decent life is giving way to the idea that a living wage is is the sort of bare minimum yeah. um i guess to to bring kelly back in uh well firstly did you did, did you have any like further responses to uh the the history um uh and then uh secondly um whether you could just say a little bit more about i mean you touched on it a moment ago just after his presentation but whether you could say a little bit more about the kind of nature of the nature of the work in your in your workplaces and um your 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 views on on the kind of debate about whether um the proliferation of kind of zero hour contracts and very like precarious models of employment have rendered um you know workplace organizing a kind of thing i mean your your own experience kind of blows that out of the water but maybe you could say a bit on that debate yeah okay so yeah so in terms of the work that we do i mean i mean yeah i said it before sort of we uh no i mean i'm a bartender i, I do all of my shifts on the bar um but my colleagues you know they're I mean, we've got people, I mean, we've got chefs, we've got kitchen porters, we've got front of house staff um, that sell tickets and clean screens. We've got, you know, their ushers, they, we have marketing, marketing workers and um, events organisers. So, and I guess like, as we were sort of talking about just now, um, whether people define themselves as skilled or unskilled, or your people define us as skilled or unskilled, and you know people what what people think the sort of the kind of people who are in these jobs. I think part of the living staff living wage, which is our sort of slogan, what that is about is sort of blowing some of the myths sort of away because you know so for for example people assume that we're all really young or we're all students or we're all just passing through, and like you know we are 
I think, younger than your average trade union branch. Um, but <laughs> <laughs> By some... By, yeah, by, by a factor of a generation. <laughs> but, you know, we're not a very small minority of us as students. You know, there are people that have worked at the Ritzy and the other picture houses for 5, 10, 15 years. Um, you know, some of them have been on strike. This is their third strike in that, in that period. Um... And, you know, well done to them for, for keeping it going, for keeping the union branch going for, for, for that long. Um, we, we're, you know, we, we're comprised of large numbers of migrant workers from in the EU and outside of the EU. We have people with families, children, um, people are going off on paternity and maternity leave. Quite a few people have gone off since while I've been working here, which is just over 18 months now. Um, our work is unskilled if you according to other people but i'd like to see you know some of my mates try and do my job i think they would they'd struggle um so it's that's sort of you know what we do day to day and and i guess like i said again i'd just like to say again like uh but the point the point of our campaign is that it literally doesn't matter it doesn't matter whether i'm the most industrious sort of like a hard-working person that sort of like gets there five minutes early every shift and sort of like works my butt off the whole way through or whether I literally or if I stand around and sort of like uh, you know go and have a fag every 15 minutes it doesn't matter everyone deserves to be paid properly and everyone deserves like a decent life and I think that's actually why the living wage is important um, and I think our work our work has become much better and our workplace is fantastic the reason why we love it so much is because the union is there and because it has been there for so long we've got this sort of sense of sort of like solidarity and sort of like uh Friendship, which um, I've never experienced before in a different workplace. In terms of whether organising precarious workers is uh, obsolete, no. Obviously, I think that um, it's very much possible. It's easier than you think it is, um, and it's incredibly worthwhile. Um, I think, following on from what we were just talking about, about sort of like creative workers, though, I think unions in general, at least in my experience, have a problem in terms of that they don't see precarious workers as worth their time because we're not. We don't, you know, when you, I've been told by union officials that, you know, one of me or my colleagues is worth a, t a tenth of a BBC worker or, you know, a fifth of a BBC worker because the amount of subs that we're going to be bringing into the wow. union. Like, uh, and, and that's what it's all about. <laughs> yeah, isn't it? And, you know, like, so, but the fact is, you know, my union has grown, is, is, is has been growing a lot. It's like something like 16%, like it grew last year. Where is that coming from? It's been coming from us, like actually, mm. and you know, I think back to is realised and it's good. You know, it has been supporting our strike and has been putting the money in. It has been financing us, and I think the reason why that is is because we are getting members. You know, it's not just in Picture House, um, where we've you know we've multiplied by five. It's in other cinemas and in other low, low low paid workplaces in our sort of industries that. And still, there's a reason why every single Bechtu leaflet now has a picture of a Ritzy worker on the front. <laughs> it's not just because we're young and <laughs> and um, appealing in that sense, but also because because I think they they realise that we are quite exciting. And um, so yeah, like not only, it is possible and it is easier than you think it is, and we should all do it. Um, so I've I've got I've got one one more question, and then maybe some other people have some some final questions too. Um, which I'm, I don't know if this is something you'll be able to answer succinctly, but um, you talked a little bit when we were discussing before about the actual like practical process of how you 
how you've gone about spreading the dispute and, and building up union strength. And I imagine that, you know, the prospect of organising a workplace from scratch is is it like mm. is incredibly thought well i mean i you know i know from my personal experience when i <coughs> i worked in a, a a bar at university and was involved in what turned out to be quite an abortive project to to try and organize to try and unionize kind of bits of bar work in in sheffield um and it is incredibly hard and it is it can it can be quite daunting so what would you say to um, somebody who's working in maybe a similar sort of workplace to yours, service or retail sector, similar types of work, that that, that wants to organise, wants to fight their boss, like, how do you go about it? What's the kind of first step? Sure. I mean, yeah, it is hard. And, like, you know, the Ritzy is not the first place that I've tried to unionise. Before I worked at the Ritzy, I worked at the Royal Shakespeare Theatre in Stratford-upon-Avon, again, um, as a member of Bechtu, and that was... I mean, I guess it also wasn't starting from scratch in the sense that every other department in the theatre, you know, the sound technicians, the light technicians, they had, they they were unionised, a, a, a large number of them were unionised, and so, you know, we had union members in the theatre, but bartending in front, the bartending and uh, wait, waiters and waitressing, and my, the, my catering department where I worked, we had, like, none. We had, I think there was two members that had, that never did anything, and they just, they just had been for a while. Um... And me and a friend, we went in and we started working and we knew that, well, what, why wouldn't we try and sort of unionise our workplace? And so, and within sort of nine months, we'd managed to get from two to about 60 union members in the, in the department. The, the way we, and that was hard because there was no one else like us in the theatre and the, that was unionised and people were very apathetic it's, and Stratford-upon-Avon is like pretty but shit. Not, <laughs> and not the not, hotbed. Not a hotbed of political <laughs> so so But like the main, I guess the, the two, so the two lessons I think I take away from that is like you just have to be confident. Like it is quite daunting um, going up and talking to someone for the first time about something political, especially when you know where that person isn't political at all and they've never really thought about it before. It's daunting, and you know you, you get sort of you know treated affectionately is sort of like the mad socialist one but um if you plug away at it and if you keep on talking to people they are convinced because it's very relevant to them and it's and it, you know it's if as long as you're not actually mad then you can persuade them that, <laughs> um, that it's in their interests to um to join their, to join your union and secondly i guess there is literally there is a trade union movement out there mm. who, that is desperate to give it support. Like, uh, if you get in touch with, if you get in touch with your, not just your union, but you know, other work. So I rang up the Ritzy actually before I, you know, when working there wasn't even sort of like uh, on my horizon. I I got in touch with someone from the Ritzy because I knew because they were going on strike at that time, and I called up with them and I asked for their advice, and we tried to organise a meeting where they'd come down and talk to us, and they were very willing to do so, and you know, likewise. I would do it for people now, you know, we, we would always do that and we're going to, we're going to another cinema, Genesis, the Genesis Cinema in yeah. North London because they've got in touch with this and said that they also want to do it. There is... In, in Stephanie Green? Yeah. yeah. Great cinema. Actually, it actually <laughs> happens. So like, Daniel's favourite this, so this, this is a good example <laughs> yeah, of celebrities, yeah. of celebrities sort of like working, of working very well. So Ken Loach, sort of like, number one fan of the Pitchhouse Strike 
um, which happened to be doing a Q&A at the Genesis Cinema and mentioned the, mentioned the fact that Pitch House workers are on strike because he is genuinely a big fan. And so they were like, oh, that sounds great. And if Ken Loach is saying that you should do it, <laughs> maybe we should. So Ken, Ken, <laughs> Ken Loach playing the Gus Allen role. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, yeah. They, so they got in touch. Now we're going to have a meeting with them, which is really exciting. Um, so I guess those would be my two things. Um, all right, well, Kelly, do you want to just say in summary like um, what people can do to... Um, support. to support you um, so I guess the main one is donating to our strike fund um, it's actually been really I mean it's been a, it's an absolutely like integral part of the of the dispute uh, to date because I mean we are very low paid and lo- losing like even one or two shifts in a month can really mess us up we've gone on strike um, I mean between all of the sites it's something like over 30 to 40 days of strike action you know we've had over almost £20,000 in donations to our strike fund and around about 15000 of that has gone out to the workers um, so far. Um, that's very important. We've had a lot of support so far from like local Labour Party groups, local trade union branches um, and other sort of like campaign organisations that invited us along to meetings and so we can speak and do collections and then they've brought people down to our picket lines. So I guess... If you have, if you're, a, if you're a trade union member or a Labour Party member, invite us um, to your branch meetings. We'll come and talk to you, because and hopefully we can support you in convincing your members that this is something that they that they would like to do as well. Um, and yeah, we can and just get in, get in contact with us and bring keep on bringing people to picket lines. We've also, thirdly, I should not forget, um, there is a boycott that we've called for Pitch House and Cineworld. And this is something which is incorporating various different things, whether it's, you know, for example, it's not just about individuals, although we do want individuals to hand in their memberships or to not go to the cinema, go spend their money elsewhere. And to shout about that, the most important thing is shout about the fact that you, you're you going elsewhere. But it's also things like um, the Human Rights Film Festival has said that if, uh, Pitch House doesn't pay a living wage by next year they won't come back and we're hoping that other film festivals will follow in those footsteps and we, we want to sort of like we've got a, we've got a list of celebrities a letter of celebrities <laughs> hopefully being printed uh, a couple that are coming out soon definitely by the time this is broadcast <laughs> like Patrick Stewart Ian McKellen sort of uh, Patrick Susan Patrick Stewart is such a babe he is, <laughs> he is. Susan Sarandon um, backing that boycott and things like that so please again Support that support us. Give that way. the cost of a cinema ticket to, to the strike, to the strike fund. fund. That is a good or idea. Or take out a mortgage with it instead. <laughs> £16 to go to the cinema on a Saturday night in central wow. London. Might as well go to the theatre. Yeah, or to the or to the music hall. <laughs> um, all right, well, Kelly, thanks again. Um, thanks again for coming. Um, uh, and I guess, unless we're going to have a sort of contrived, like, artificial conclusion, like, I guess that's, I guess that's pretty much it. Um. So no, let's have a contract. <laughs> All right. Labor Days was presented by Ed Mustill, Daniel Randall, and Ellie Clark, with research from Holly Smith. The special guest was Kelly Rogers. Labor Days is produced by Liam McNulty. Did we get the Ed Sheeran bit in another bit? <laughs>